Thank you for tuning in to our Bear Creek AG podcast. You are about to listen to our weekly Bible study with Pastor Tony. Thanks for joining in. So glad you all are here tonight. We're going to be concluding the book of Amos tonight, chapter 9. So if you would, turn in your uh, Bibles, your textbooks to chapter 9 of the book of Amos. We're in week 14. Who would have thought it would take 14 weeks to do nine chapters? Either I'm a poor teacher or you're poor students. I don't know which it is. But no, no, it's because we really have taken our time. And uh, tonight, whether we finish chapter 9 or not, we will be finished uh, with Amos. uh, Just simply because I feel like like we probably will tonight. So anyways, so as we begin chapter 9, in chapter 9, we're going to find the fifth and final vision that God gave Amos concerning the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, the first two visions that that God gave Amos to give to the people uh, demonstrated really they were God's mercy and long-suffering towards His people. Uh, Even in Amos' writing, he showed deep concern for the people's well-being, and, and, and because God was warning them. Remember, we read this as a nine-chapter book. Reality is this was several letters or several, it was eventually written down, proclamations from the Lord that, that was given over a span of time. And so with it, we kind of, we look at it as a book. In reality, it's, it was several correspondence. So it's as if, as if, if God through Amos was kind of turning the heat up a little bit, if you want to call that. The first two is like, hey, you know, turn to me. Turn to me and I'll save you. You know, you need to turn for it. You need to, you need to show justice. You need to quit misbeha- uh, mistreating the poor and take care of the widows, you know. And, but they didn't. And so the, the next two uh, uh, visions uh, revealed that God would no longer act in compassion and forgive His people, but would actually destroy because they wouldn't turn to Him. He says, you know what, I'm going to destroy, I'm going to destroy your, 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 your sanctuaries. Uh, your king is going to be destroyed. His lineage is going to be destroyed. Uh, and many of God's own people, because they would not repent, God says, you're going down. You're going down. And so tonight, this final vision in chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, it describes the, the enactment of the predictions in the third and fourth vision. In other words, we're actually, God is now is, is fulfilling. He said, this is what's going to happen. In uh, the earlier ones, it, it talked about the destruction of the temple. We're going to see that. He's actually going to profess or he's going to demand it or command it to be done. Uh, the end of Israel, we know that that eventually happens. It, des- it describes events when God shatters and destroys the temple and the sinful nation. So in this, this, this vision stresses the, the, the human inability to escape. I want you to know that when we read this, take note that it, it's impossible to escape the hand of God's Judgment. We're going to read that. This is just the introduction. So let's begin. In this fifth and final vision, you'll notice some differences in Amos's writing. In the previous four, he began with, This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold. But tonight, he just starts this last, this last correspondence with, I saw. Okay? And, and what he saw is, is, is very startling and probably was very startling for the people of the northern kingdom. Okay, in it, there's no doubt where God was not vague in the previous visions about the judgment. He, he, he didn't necessarily say it was going to be him. But tonight he leaves no doubt the judgment's coming from him. So let's begin in verse one. It says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar and he said, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. 
If they dig into Shul, from there my hand take them. If they climb up to the heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight in the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and he shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil... And not for good. So Amos sees the Lord. Hey, where is he standing? He's standing by the altar which is in the temple. So the first thing I have to ask you guys is what altar and what temple do you think that he's standing beside? Okay. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. What temple? What what Okay, all right, yeah. So most likely this is not the temple or the altar at Jerusalem, right? That wouldn't make sense because this is a prophecy towards, a uh, prophetic word towards the northern kingdom. It definitely wouldn't be the altar in heaven. That wouldn't make sense. Why would God tear down the temple uh, and the altar in, uh, in, in heaven? But this temple and the altar are most likely the temple and the altar in Brother Gerald, you're right. You didn't know the name of the city, but you're right. Bethel. Bethel. That's, that was the spiritual capital of the northern, uh, northern kingdom. We've spoke many times about it throughout the book of Amos. Okay, So absolutely, the Lord commanded that the capitals of the temple to be struck. Now, we're uncertain who God commanded to strike them. I mean, I know that seems kind of, well, you're being nitpicky, but I mean, he spoke. So who struck? It doesn't say God struck. He spoke that they would be struck. Uh, some believe that maybe Amos, maybe God gave him the power to do it, but most likely he's speaking to an angel, probably. He's commanding his angels because Amos is seeing this. He's not necessarily participating in this case. So it's probably an angel. Now, any idea what the capitals are? I mean, that's, that's a word that we use in our vocabulary. Any idea what the capitals might imply? Okay, well, I'll tell you, it's not the capital of the country. The capital was another word for the vertical pillars of the temple. They were the weight-bearing columns that the roof would reside upon. Okay, and if in fact someone came along with enough force and hit the top of them, it would shake the foundation as God commanded it, and it would actually cause the temple to crumble, which is what God is speaking of here. Okay, so the intent of the strike was to destroy the temple and also kill those in it and those... Do not, excuse me, excuse me, kill those uh, that are in it. And those who do not die, God said he will kill by the sword. So none, in theory, would escape. The reason why I say theory, in a minute we're going to see that not everybody dies. But basically God's saying, hey, it's time. I want, I want, I want the temple broke down. Whether God's speaking figuratively in the spiritual sense or, or, or literally, it really doesn't matter. Because we know from history that that. Israel was pretty much destroyed. Everything was brought down to the ground. The people were, that were not killed were carried off. And basically God is saying, this, it's done. I'm done. I'm done with them. And so now judgment's coming. Brother Gerald? Yeah, where he said, put my hands on the pillars. Excellent. Those who had been considered the capitals. But absolutely where he, he knocked us and it killed over 3,000 people, if I remember my Bible history correctly. So, yeah, ab absolutely. So God is, is, is saying, it is, I'm done, okay? And what's interesting is, is within this text, the spear of God's rule is expressed through extremes, okay? His, his, his reach is expressed through extremes. So Amos is writing in extremes. It's almost a poetic way of writing. 
he says, look, you, these people will not be able to descend into Shul, which is the place of the dead. They couldn't unless they were dead. So, it's, it's, But he's talking about hiding from God. So you can't even hide from God there. If they can make it into heaven, they can't hide from God there. If they go to the mountaintop, they're not going to hide from God there. If they go to the bottom of the sea, they can't hide from God there. So Amos is using a, a, a form of poetry, I guess you would say, a writing that expresses the extremes that you cannot go anywhere out of the reach of God. Okay? I love it. It lines up with what Psalms 139.7 says. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in shul, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So no matter how extreme the distance is, the hand of God is present, whether for judgment or salvation. That's how powerful God is. And that's what Amos is trying to express here. Okay? So, um, regards to the effort, they could not hide from them. They could not hide from God's judgment. His eyes was fixed on them. So, what does this remind you of? What other part of Scripture, what other book does this remind you of that God's eyes is fixed upon them and there's no escaping the judgment of God? Revelation. Absolutely. So we actually see uh, the foreshadowing of all mankind, if I can use that term, I think that's correct here, of what will happen in, in the end times when all those who are rebellious towards God. Verse 5, The Lord God of hosts, He who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile, and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds His upper, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and, and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Now, as he's done previously in his writing in Amos, uh, takes a break. He proclaims judgment. He sees the vision of God. In several of the other visions, he does the same thing. And he almost takes a praise break. I like to call it a praise break. He just he proclaims, he said, This is what I saw, and then he says, Oh, you, this, this is he who's going to do this. He reminds the people, his listener, his reader, and I came, and our, and our account, who this is. He sings his praises to God that speaks of his power, that speaks of God's authority, and the sovereignty of God. This is who's going to do it. You, there's no stopping him. You can't escape him. This is he that's going to do it. This small section starts, I love it, and ends with the Lord. And in case anyone has any doubt, about the ability or willingness of God to carry out His plans, He tells us about this. The Lord, who is what? He is almighty. There's no one or nothing that can stand against Him. So God not only touches the earth and melts it, bringing all who live on it to mourn, He controls nature. He uses a, a, a metaphor or a word picture that he used in the previous chapters about the Nile rising and going down. We talked about that, I believe, last week, if not the week before. He's saying God controls that. He talks about the waters going up and God going down. God controls the atmosphere. I mean, this is the power of God. He puts things into motion and he has full control. If you ever think the world is out of control, know that as long as you're under the blood of Jesus, God is in control of your life. As long as you allow him to. 
He's in control of your life. And that's what, that's what he's saying here. Who is doing these things? Who would do all these? Who has the ability to do all this? Oh, the Lord is his name. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Anytime you see that in Old Testament, that means Yahweh. That means the I Am, the great God. He has several names he's used there, but this is the, this is the name that he gave his people. Okay? So uh, that's powerful. He takes a praise break. Every once in a while I think it's good we take a praise break, isn't it? I think I mean even in in, in light of, of of COVID, in light of the fires and the hurricane and the flooding and, and 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 the sad news out of Afghanistan, the Middle East, it's okay to remember God's in control. And you know what? He will be true to His word, and we can just take a praise break and give Him glory and honor and power, because He is the Lord God Almighty. Don't ever lose sight of that fact. He is the Lord God. Almighty, nobody compares to him. There, he doesn't. He may have enemies, but none of his enemies can compete against him. Satan is not his opposite. Satan is not his opposite. He he's not equal with God. He is a created being that was created by God that rebelled. God has full control over Satan and his whereabouts and what he's doing. Trust me on that. We do not have to fear. Amen. That's a good word. I don't care who you are. Verse 7, I told you, I, I, I'm excited about ending this book because, because I'm excited about the ending of this book. This, this has got a lot of promise for us. So let's continue. Verse 7, are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaptar, and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among the nations as one shakes with a sh- sh- I can get that word out. Help me with that. How do you say that? A sieve? Thank you. But I, tr- I practice that, I promise. But no pebble shall fall to the earth. <laughs> to what? I'm sorry, what was that? Just don't pitch my tent there. You're right. And the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. Who says disaster shall not overtake, over, overtake or meet us? So, um, you know, as, as I looked at this, I want you to see the similarities of, of God's chosen people in the, in the Old Testament, the, the children of Israel, which became the nation of Israel. And and the church in the New Testament as the bride of Christ. Um, there is a special relationship with, between God and the Israelites. Remember, he created the Israelites. I mean, he created all of us, but Abram was not known as a Jew. Through Abram, through the covenant, he set aside some people. Their genetics are no different than anybody else's during that time. In other words, they all were the same group of people pretty much. They may come from different regions, but they all came from Noah, who came from Adam. But because God pulled these people aside, and Abram, actually it was just Abram, which became Abraham, became covenant with God through Abraham, God gave birth. He honored Abraham and gave birth to these people. We know the patriarchs, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from Jacob came the 12 tribes, which became a nation, if you know your Bible history. All right? That was a very special relationship with, with, with these people. But as we have seen many times, the sins, even of God's people, had broken that sacred cord. 
Israel broke the sacred cord with God. God did not break the covenant with Israel, but Israel broke the covenant with God. It is true that Israel was special. God had brought them about at His sovereign hand, and He made them sovereign and, and mighty. He delivered them from, uh, uh, for them and saving them from the grip of Egyptians. So we, we see how God moved them. I'm trying to bring a point together here without just reading my notes. They were special to God. The fact that they still are, they still are. The fact that God did this was a tremendous act of love on behalf of the children of Israel, which by all means they have not forgotten even to today. Some of them may not acknowledge it, but they still have their history. They know where they came from, whether they're religious Jews, uh, Orthodox Jews, or Messianic Jews. Okay? And I think about that and how that reflects today because there's a new covenant through the blood of Jesus and God gave birth to his church, the bride. We're, I don't believe in replacement theology. We are not Israel. So when you read that, we can't say that. But we are definitely grafted into the family, the lineage. Okay. But when I think about the price that God paid for the church, now it covers even it covers even the Israelites. The Jews can still have salvation through the Messiah today. But when I think about the price that God paid for us and how He led us out of the bondage of sin. You see where I'm trying to go? There, there's, a, there's a mirror there. And how He, 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 he takes care of us. And I look at how... Israel pretty much turned their back on God knowing all that he had done for them for hundreds of years. Absolutely. And he's done the same for the church today. And that's where I'm going at. So what should the reaction of the people of Israel have been in remembrance of God delivering from bondage? What should, what should have been their, their response to God? I'm sorry? Repentance? Humility? Gratitude? Faithfulness? Right? How did they respond to God's goodness? Yeah, they were disobedient. They were unfaithful. They were un grateful and they were full of pride brother Joey yeah and I kind of as I was studying this today remember I, I use this word a lot not so and I hope it doesn't impress you because I'm not trying to impress you but the study of God's Word, there's hermeneutics and homiletics. And the hermeneutical side of thing is studying it within the culture of the time for the purpose of understanding God's nature so that we can, I like to say, build a bridge or a time portal to the present. Okay? And, and what Brother Joey just said is so, so true. It's, it, that scripture, 2 Chronicles 7.14, applies today if my, because we are His people today. We are His called we are the the royal priesthood and and so it is and so it is with with what we're talking about here it seems to me 
that the church today is, is becoming lax. And when I say church, that's a broad stroke. The, the church is, in, in, in the, at least in our country, in, in terms of the broad stroke of church. Um, and it seems like pride has set into the church of America. We can do no wrong. It seems like today that we, we, we are not content, we're ungrateful. And I'm just talking about in spiritual matters, but it also rolls over into carnal material things as well. Uh, and we walk in, 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 in my opinion, you can disagree and that's fine if you want to, my opinion, we walk as a whole in great disobedience to the Word of God. See? And, and that alarms, it alarms me. Because, see, God does not change. True? God does not change. He, he does not change. He's the same God in the New Testament as He is in the Old Testament. True? He's the God of the Old Covenant. He made with Abraham and confirmed throughout the, the patriarchs. He's also the God of the New Covenant that He made through His Son Jesus with the, with the church today. He doesn't change. And what alarms me is that there are, there are warnings in the Old Testament. We don't see the warning. We do see warnings in the New Testament, but it's more of epistles being written by the apostles to the church warning them. But those are warnings for us today. But we also have warnings in the Old Testament, and this is one of them. You know, a couple of weeks ago uh, in my message, I preached, and one of the, text, the core texts was Matthew 7, 21. That, that scripture, those statistics that I began that, ser that sermon series two months ago with still are on my wall and it still devastates me today to know that 4%, only 4% of those aged 8 to 20 have a biblical worldview. That bothers me. And then the, this scripture that I use in Matthew bothers me. The fact that there will be people who will get to heaven one day and realize that they're not lost they are unsaved they won't realize it we cast out demons we did great exploits in your name we, we did all these great things and jesus says not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter he says i don't know you that alarms me and i'm trying hard not to read this scripture this chapter 9 through the lens of my previous message but i don't think i can help but do that because i'm looking at it through the lens of the word of god as a whole there is, a, there is a sense that God expects us to be faithful to Him, faithful to His Word, walk in obedience to what He tells us to do, walk in obedience to the leading of His Spirit that we fail to do today. And it, and it scares me. It alarms me that one day we're going to wake up and we're going to be standing before God. I'm saying we, but you, I, you know, when it's our turn, and we're going to hear well done. I mean, not hear well done, but hear I never knew you. Over in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, this is a scripture I came across that I didn't use uh, in that sermon series, but I just came across it. I was studying this this week. He says in verse 26, 26 of chapter 10, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, the truth of what? Jesus is the truth. Truth will set you free. The truth of the, the knowledge of the Word of God. The truth of, of who He is as the Savior. There are no longer, so let me back up, the knowledge of the truth. There are no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. He's saying here, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have acknowledged or know the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we keep on doing that, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. It nulls and voids the sacrifice of Christ. 
But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire will consume the adversaries. Plural. So you become an enemy of God. Verse 28 says, Anyone who set aside the law, uh, excuse me, anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. The writer of Hebrews is using the Old Testament uh, Zion imageries for the New Testament Christians who are being persecuted, Jews in this case. And what he's saying here is, you know that in the Old Testament, anyone who breaks the law, it only takes two or three witnesses to say you broke the law, and there's no, that's it. So understand the context of what the writer of Hebrews is saying there, okay? How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? That don't sound like kumbaya to me. It don't sound like we're just going to be sitting around and grace, 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 more grace. Yes, I believe in grace, so don't take that out of context. But it's, it's kind of like, what the point I'm trying to make is, the Israelites of the northern kingdom felt like they had a special relationship with God, that they could go and do what they want to. All they had to do is go make sacrifice, and God was okay with it. We're not much different. You know, we bash the Catholics, because they will go on Friday night to confession and confess their sins. And we, we, we say this, we don't know this for a fact. We might know some Catholics that do that, just like we may know some, quote-unquote, air quotes, Christians who do the same thing. But a lot of people do the same thing, Christians, don't we? We come to church on Sunday morning, we repent and cry, and then we go back and live our lives the way we did before that Sunday. And, and that's what I'm seeing here. That's what the Israelites were doing. They had this, they, 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 oh, we've got the law, we've got the word, we, we can't go to Jerusalem, but we go to Bethel, we've got a temple, we worship God. Remember, this is week 14 of a nine chapter book, and we've covered all that, how they were, they were falsely worshiping God. They were having festivals just to have parties, and, and they weren't honoring God with their lives, with their sacrifices. And, and that's, that's, what we, that's what I'm seeing here. God says he's done. How sad. What a sad commentary. When all that God invested. And remember this. This northern kingdom was ordained of God. You don't remember your Bible history? Just remember that after Solomon died, there's a split. But the reason why the split was because of the condition of the southern nation of Judah. And God raised up a leader. And it was a civil war, basically. Although they did not fight, they split. Rehoboam and Jeroboam. One was king of the south, one was king of the north, one was the, the offspring of, of David and Solomon. Okay, so it wasn't like these people in the northern kingdom were cursed because they rebelled or turned away from God from the fact that they separated from Jeru uh, Judah. It's because they were walking and living in sin. And the prophet then reminds these disobedient people that Israel is not the only nation that God has moved from one place to another. He says, I brought you out of Egypt. He says, but... You know, are you any different than Cush? Now, that was probably, an, and I won't say God insulted him, but I'm sure that made him go back because Cush is basically uh, northern Africa. People probably Egyptians or, or, or uh, oh gosh, what's that other nation? Sudan. They either came from Sudan or Ethiopia. But the point bad is they came a long ways. We don't fully understand what this means because we don't have any Bible history of God moving these people. But God says, I've moved them. You're no different, all right? You're no different than they are. You're the same as the Cushites. He also compares Israel to two of their enemies. 
the Philistines and the Syrians. Now hear what he's saying here. God compares Israel to these two nations in two ways. First, the district from which God brought these nations. Neither one originated in this region of the world. Any idea where the Philistines originated from? Well, they were in this region, but not where they were at at this time. Okay, I'll let you off the butt, off the, off the hook. Well, he, he actually says it. He says, Captor, uh, which is the island of Crete. The Philistines came from the island of Crete. And the Syrians came from east of the Persian Gulf. But over time, God, God now tells us he moved these people groups into these areas. Just like he moved Israel out of Egypt to this area. So God is saying, I moved you from here to there. I protect you. I also brought these people from here to there. I'm the God that moves people. I'm the God that ordains things. Okay? The second comparison is the fact that not only did God move these nations around, but that they were sinful, and Israel is just as sinful as their enemies. God was seeing them as his enemies. God wouldn't destroy his friends. Is this making sense? I want to make sure we conclude this, this, this book on an on a understanding. These are his people, but because of this disobedience, he no longer sees them as his covenant people. Not because he broke the covenant, but because they did. And they took it from, they were prideful, they were disobedient, they were unfaithful people. And God, does God have limits? Did your mama have limits? How much she put up with you? Maybe not be a good analogy, but God is saying, I, I have some limits here. I can only take so much. I, I, you, you are stiff-necked people. You won't listen. Just like God's judgment fell on those nations, it will fall on Israel. But there's some good news in this. Not all of Israel will perish. Verse 8 says what? It says, I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob... Now, some suggest this means uh, that uh, that Israel. Uh, excuse me. Some suggest this means Israel will be utterly destroyed, but not Judah, because Jacob speaks of both kingdoms. While that is true, I believe, and most scholars agree, verse ten tells us uh, the proud and unrepentant would die, which lines up with what God said in chapter five about seeking Him. If you remember back in chapter five, He says, "Seek me, and I'll save you." Seek me three times. He said that. And so what he's basically saying, I'm going to destroy, and he goes on to say, I'm going to destroy the sinful people in Israel, but those who are faithful to me I will spare. That's the only way to be saved. It's the same way in Revelation, is it? In times. The only way to be saved is to be in right relationship with God. The fulfillment of God's judgment on Israel is assumed, and now Amos addresses what will happen after this disastrous event. Okay, so God said it, it's done. He put it into action. It, t- it takes place. We know that the northern kingdom was destroyed. Uh, people were scattered. Uh, they were killed. It was just decimated. The land was left in ruin. Okay? Any questions before we go to verse 11? I know I kind of stumbled over my words there, but I try not to just to, re- just to repeat my writings. I'm trying to build that bridge of how that applied then to how it applies now. Basically, we have to be mindful to be walking obedience. That's what a disciple does. Like I said, it goes back to all that preached for eight weeks about the cost of discipleship, about this is the way. Right? They, they got out. They literally were not in. They were in God's way, but they weren't in the way.
that makes sense, okay? Now, things change. Look at verse 11. In that day. In that day. Well, this kind of leaves it vague. In what day? The day that God destroys them? No, not necessarily. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. All right. In that day, immediately moves us historically in reference to the future time when God miraculously intervenes in the affairs of the world. See, absolutely. It is, an, it is associated with the end of Israel, but here Amos moves it beyond the judgment to the promise of blessing which will come after that judgment. Notice that Jerusalem, or a city, the capital of, of, of the northern kingdom, is not raised up. It doesn't mention that. It says the booth of David that has fallen. Any idea what Amos means or God means by the booth or the booth of David? What is the booth of David? Tabernacle. Okay. Any other thoughts? I'm not saying that's wrong. Just giving... Oh, there you go. You cut to the chase, but we're almost out of time. So you're right. There's not a whole lot left to discover here, is there? Yeah. The booth was a small shelter, okay, of branches piled on a simple frame. It's kind of like a lean-to if you was out, uh, or an old pup tent for those old army guys. You used to have one of those. You couldn't stand up in a pup tent. You put it up and you crawled in. It's kind of that kind of idea, that kind of imagery, okay? The Jews, if you remember right, they had a feast called the Feast of Booths. Anybody remember what the Feast of Booths was about? They still participate in Orthodox. Well, okay, I'm glad. I'm going to learn you something tonight. The Feast of Booths is a celebration to commemorate how God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, but how they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and God provided for them. So even today, Orthodox Jews and some Messianic Jews, I should say, because they still participate in the old festivals, uh, they will literally build a tent or build a lean-to in their yard and they will literally take the family out there and they will stay and spend the night in these booths. That's what the word means, booths. Okay, so we got an idea of what it means. The spe this speaks of, you're absolutely right, David's kingdom, as your commentary said, okay? What had happened at this point? What is the condition of the kingdom, David's lineage and kingdom at this point with, that we're reading in Amos? It's almost non-existent, isn't it? God, through David, brought Israel, brought them together. Okay? Under David's leadership, it was the most prosperous time ever in the history of Israel. They, they conquered more land. Their, their, their borders expanded. Uh, they, they had wealth. Take that into Solomon, which was David's son. It even grew more and stability became. They were the most powerful nation, the most wealthy nation in the world, okay? But what had happened after Solomon's death, as I already spoke of, the nation split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Both kingdoms fell away from God. But uh, the bottom line is, is that it split. It split up. Now, who do you remember what God promised David? God made David a promise. Do you remember the promise that God 
made David. That his kingdom would last forever. He would always have someone in his family lineage sitting on the thrones. Of course, Brother Gerald, he also cut to the chase, okay? Who is that person? It is Messiah. It is Jesus. So in that day, now we know what day. I know you say, well, it's the end times. It's, you are correct. How do we know that? Well, because in that day, God will repair the breaches and rebuild his kingdom as in the days of old under David's rule at his most prosperous day. This speaks of God will reunite the kingdom. So now God is speaking prophetically about the 12 tribes or the entire kingdom will be reunited. It won't be Judah and Israel. It will be Israel once again and will reestablish David's kingdom. If you want some extracurricular reading, you can go to Ezekiel chapter 37. There's some more scriptures referring to this. And of course, we know the last descendant to sit on the throne will be Jesus, okay? Be Jesus. When will Jesus sit on the throne in Jerusalem again? The millennial reign. Okay, so we, we see that this is very prophetic to the. He said, Yes, he's on the throne in heaven. We, we acknowledge that he's at the right hand of the Father. We get a lot of imagery of that. But this is speaking about the lineage of David and reestablishing and bringing the nation. We know that God brought the nation back together, reestablished it as a nation in 1948. Now we're getting into some prophecy here, eschatology, right? And God has, has blessed them, protected them. Their, their, their land is expanding. We know that. Um, God is now returning the Jews, although it's slowed down because of COVID. God is returning the Jews from all parts of the world back to Israel. He's gathering them in. The time of the church is going to come to an end when the church is removed. And then it will be about the Old Testament people, the people of Israel, once again, the Jews, that God will then. And then, of course, we know the Antichrist. The temple will be reestablished. Destination will take place. Or de you know, the Antichrist set up rule. And then Christ will return and set up his millennial reign for a thousand years. Okay? Any questions on that? Any comments? The temple be re will be reestablished. Jesus will reign from Jerusalem. That gives me great hope. Okay? Now, how do we know that this includes everybody? How do we know that? Well, in verse 12, Amos states that they, they may possess the remnant of Edom in all the nations who are called by my name. So, the restoration of the kingdom will be made possible the inclusion of other nations to be a part of that kingdom, okay? So, um, what do we know about Edomites? Anybody know anything about the Edomites? Or let, let, we're almost out of time. What did Amos say earlier in chapter 2, I believe, would happen to the Edomites? Anybody remember? Am I that poor of a teacher? They were going to be wiped off the face of the earth. Okay, so utterly destroyed. So we know this isn't talking about the actual nation or people of Edomites, but what you also have to know in prophecy, Old Testament prophecy, especially in Isaiah and in Ezekiel, and I believe in Obadiah, that a, the word Edomites or Edom is used to describe humankind, mankind in general. Okay? Mankind in general. 
So from that, this means that Edom represents humankind. Possessing these people, they're going to be possessed, does not mean that they're going to be enslaved, does not mean that these people are going to be punished or judgment. What Amos is telling us, or God's telling us through Amos, is all humankind, all nations that are called by the name of the Lord will enjoy the blessings of this restored kingdom just like the remnant of Israel. Millennial reign. Okay? Jesus made this possible with his blood, and the fulfillment of this will take place when he sets up his kingdom in Jerusalem. So I'm trying to show you how the figure of speech that Amos is using, the prophetic words that he's using here, is speaking of when Jesus physically reestablishes David's kingdom or David's rule, his lineage, and will rule a thousand years. All, all mankind, as long as they've been called, that's another way of saying, received the Holy Spirit. No man comes to follow the Spirit draws. And so because of that, we will all be a part, we'll all sit under the rule of Jesus We'll all be Jews in a way, I guess you could say, but we're, we know we're the bride of Christ. But you hear, you hear what he's saying here. This is pre-church. This is pre-birth of church, pre-Christ. And so it's using those terms, but it really includes all mankind. And I feel like I'm ending with a dud. This was supposed to be really, mm, but I'm feeling like I'm ending with a dud. I lost you somewhere. Ask questions before they read the last three scriptures. Any questions? Any comments? Just know that 1948 began this process where God's going to gather His people together. Not the church, but His Jewish people. Covenant people of the Old Testament, okay? It's already begun. And eventually this will be fulfilled when the Antichrist is defeated. Satan will be thrown. Well, no, Satan will not be thrown yet. Only the Antichrist will be thrown in the bottomless, not the bottomless pit, but be thrown in into the lake of fire. It's then... Satan will be thrown in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. And Jesus will rule from Jerusalem. And we will rule with him. All those who are called. Okay? No questions or comments? I'll keep going. Yes, Brother Jim? That's right. It's not. Grace, he, he says, where much sin abound, grace abounds. But does that mean, I'm paraphrasing, well, does that mean that we should sin more so more grace abounds? Absolutely not. God forbid. Absolutely. And, and I feel, Brother Jim, and it may just be, it may be because I'm a pastor and I look at my flock. And I'm not, I'm not listen, I'm not being judgmental, but in a way I am being judgmental. You're a shepherd looks over his flock. He goes through and he, okay, this one's got a scratch, this one needs anointing, this one's limping, this one's being disobedient, break his leg, put him over my shoulder, let me carry him for a while, right? I mean, that's what a shepherd does. So I'm not necessarily being judgmental, but in a way, I'm being very observant. And what bothers me is I see Christians today in our church and others who profess to be Christ, that be Christians or profess Christ as Lord and Savior, who are blatantly living in, in, in a life of direct disobedience to the Word of God. And, and I think when I read in Hebrews, it makes it very, very clear. God will not tolerate that. But yet, what do we throw up there? Grace! And I know I say a lot about this, 
I'm not anti-grace. I believe in grace. Only by the grace of God that I'm here tonight. I believe in grace. And I struggle in my own sin. Let me be very transparent. I, I am not the second coming of Jesus. I can tell you that. Don't amen me down. Don't shout me down. I know that. I, I understand that. But as Hebrews says, it's the deliberate sinning. It's the intentional. It's the pride as Eve had that says what? I want to be like God. Who doesn't? It was pride that brought Lucifer down. He wanted to be God. He wanted to be worshipped as God. And, and, and so that is that the root of all sin is really is pride in the fact that we feel like we can do it and there's no consequences to it. See, Did you have another comment, Brother Jim? Right. And that's what separates you from God is the sin life. Yeah. And here's the thing. This is where grace really plays part, really comes into our life. So does that mean if I give my heart to Jesus today, i got to walk away and be perfect? No. A newborn Christian, someone who's new to the faith, grace is there for them like it is for us to help them along their way until they understand it and can break away from that. But can I tell you something? It's time for Christians, we, those who've been saved a while, we got to pull our lips off the bottle. See my point? That's where I'm at. Maturity, the whole series on discipleship was about maturing in the Lord. It's time we start acting like who we say we are. And that's, that's, that's what my point is. So I'm, I'm all about grace, and God extends grace, and I believe in grace. Thank the Lord for the grace that He extends toward me, because I do mess up, and I, and, I, and I do sin. I'm not here to say I don't. I strive not to, but I'm just like you. I, they're, they're, I've got you know, lust of the eye, lust of flesh, and pride of life. It has a tendency of, Paul says what? I have to beat my body black and blue daily to the submission of the cause of Christ. I'm no different. I wake up in the morning, I may be in a bad mood, I may not like reading my word, may not want to pray. I, I'll be quite honest with you. One day this week I started praying, I said, God, I can't even pray. I can't pray. I, I wasn't lost, I wasn't in sin. I just said, I just... I, and I hate to say it, I didn't want to pray. I was, I was mentally, physically, emotionally tired. And I think God understands that. He didn't cast stones at me. And, and I still read. I read my word. And I said, Lord, I just, I just can't focus on anything right now. Uh, but there's, there's grace. And, and, and so I, I struggle in those areas as well. But I, I think God, and, and I know I'm saying I think a lot in this. As I understand Scripture and as I feel, God is not as patient with us that have been on the meat for a while, if that makes sense. I could be wrong, I bet that's not the way as I read it. John, did you have your hand up? Yeah, I know that God would have died by the sword and the serpents devouring them or bite them. Yeah. I believe, um, you know, without communication with God, you know, you're not gonna go anywhere. You know, and just like your father, you stop talking to your dad, it hurts. Yeah. Yeah. And you separate yourself from God. And that's why I said I don't know you anymore. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and, you're, and you're right. And this may not be the best example, but I know people who come to church here and profess Christ, and I'm, I'm not saying they weren't saved. They, they came and they were coming for a while, and this has been over the 12 years I've been here, so this isn't just like recently, so I'm not like uh, pinpointing anyone in particular. Uh, but they come for a while, and they start coming because they're in a crisis, they're in a bind, they need, a, they need direction in life, they need a financial solution. They, Whatever, whatever it is that drives them to church or back to church, because sometimes it's, it's, it's very repetitive. It's, you know, I've seen several, several people, this is their pattern. Um, and the point I'm trying to make, I guess I need to cut to the chase for time's sake, is, is, the, is the fact that they come for a while, but whether it gets too hard or God answers their prayer, they, they fall right back into their old lifestyle that has, reflects nothing about being a Christian. See? So, what happened to the seed? In that case, it probably got strangled out by weed, weeds and thistles and thorns. The old life. It found, it, found, it, found, it found ground. It sprouted. I hope you know I'm going back to the message over two months ago, almost three months ago, about you have to do something with the Word. Same Word, same messenger, same spirit. But for some reason... Either didn't take root or it got choked out by, by the past life, and so it didn't produce a fruit, a good fruit that remained as we're commanded to do. That's, that's, I'll be honest with you, I'm on a journey right now. I don't know where it's going to take me. I don't know what God's going to do with where He's taking me as, as, a, as a person, not just as a leader, as a pastor. Uh, but I would rather have a handful of people on fire for God that are sold out to walking. I can do more. I think of David and his mighty men. He could do more with his little group of mighty men than he could do with an army that was untrained, unprepared, and that was scared. And that's kind of where I'm at. I don't want a large number of people. I want spiritually mature people that we can take on the gates of hell with a squirt gun if that's what God called us to do. Or when we see some demonic activity in somebody's life that we can lay hands on that person, cast out that demon, or we can lay hands... You, you see my point? That's, that's what I'm... That's, I think that's, if we're to do, if we're to do what Jesus did and in greater things, why aren't we seeing that? See, and there's a reason for it. If God said it, there's a reason for it. And, and I think it's just because we're truly not walking in the way. We're not walking in obedience. We're not hungry and thirsting for righteousness. We're not walking hand in hand. Someone made the comment, John, about walking, walking with the Lord. The only way that God can order your steps is you've got to be close behind him. You got to hear his voice. The sheep know the shepherd's voice and follow where he leads. See, and, and, I, and I think I think we're in the end times. I think the, I know the Bible says in the end times there'll be a great falling away. I don't know if that means churches are going to get smaller. Or it just means the people who are coming are going to fall away and they're going to still go through the motions. Isn't that what we see with Israel? I don't know. I, only time will tell. But I, I know that God's. It's calling me, and I believe he's calling this church to a closer, stronger, committed walk with him. I really believe that. I really believe that. I think God's tired of our sin. And God's tired of us playing games. Time is short. Verse 13, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the, and the treader of the grapes. 
him who sows the seed. The mountain shall dip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortress of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on the, their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. There's the rest of your proof that we know we're talking about end times. It already began in 1948 with the reestablishment of the nation of Israel. There's coming a day when the covenant land will be more blessed than the days of Joshua after they first crossed over the Jordan River and possessed it by the covenant people. They will never again, again be uprooted. Now, think that I, I'm going to close with that, but I just want you to think about this. God destroyed the nation of Israel as the northern kingdom. Although they're starting to go back to the land of Israel, truly they will not fully be restored until the end times. So they still haven't been fully restored. So it's coming, though. It's coming. Okay? Any questions? Any comments? Man, 14 weeks has uh, been a blur. But, uh, you know, when you read these Old Testament prophets, you gotta, you got to kind of break it down. Because otherwise, it's like, what did that mean? So hopefully we answered some questions. I hope I created more questions for you where you go back and study it again and read it again. And try to, there's some meat in there. But nothing else. See it as a warning. If my people who call by my name will humble themselves. We have to humble ourselves. We have to turn from our wicked ways. And uh, God's going to bring healing. God would have saved them if they would have turned, but they didn't turn. So God kept his word. Amen. All right, let me pray a blessing over you. Father, thank you so much for the written word, the spoken word, God, for your spirit's leading tonight. Lord, I thank you so much for this little book of Amos, God, and what it's meant to me, Lord, and giving me the understanding of it, God, and how I believe it applies today. And I pray that, God. I pray nothing I've said has brought confusion or, 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 or been in, inaccurate, Lord. I don't want to add to or take away. I pray everything has been led of your spirit, God. And I pray for those who have been a part of this Bible study for the last 14, 15 weeks. Lord, that God, that you will bless them with this book. God, it's a great book. You gave it to us for a reason. So, Lord, we should strive to study, to understand it. So, God, we can apply it to our own lives. And I pray that's what we do, God. May we have had ears to hear what your spirit has told us, God. And I thank you for it. And be with us as we go home. Keep us safe. God, keep us safe tonight in our travels, Father. And, Lord, may we break, wake up in the morning renewed in our spirit and our rest, God, ready to take on whatever your spirit leads us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for joining our podcast. Here at Bear Creek AG, our goal is to help others know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Have a great week.